Heavenly Father, it is a joy to, to study your word. Not just because we desire to be educated or to learn something we didn't know beforehand. Because in your word you have, you have declared yourself, you have revealed yourself. You have made known yourself to mankind. You've told us about what you've done about our, our deepest needs. You tell us about how we can have relationship with you and how we are to live in a way that is the way that you have designed us to be, created in your image. So Lord, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, we wouldn't just be looking to add to our knowledge, but we'd be looking to encounter the living God who communicates through his word. That we would see something more of the majesty of Jesus Christ We'd see something more and be in awe of the wonder of who you are and your character and that you would bring about a deep-seated conviction and change in our life because we have had an encounter with you. Lord, we pray for the work of your spirit to do these things. Help me to speak clearly and to not hinder your purposes. But Lord, we pray that we'd be built up and changed by the work and ministry of your spirit now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So today we are finishing off John's Gospel. When I say finishing off John's Gospel, we have only done chapters 17 through to 21 as we um, we were looking towards Easter, so we decided to centre in John's Gospel, particularly focusing around uh, the death and resurrection, but also taking on the events that followed after that. Over the next two weeks, we're just going to do a two-part series on can we trust that the Bible is reliable? You know, you hear a lot of things, people questioning whether or not the Bible's been messed with, whether we can believe it's historically accurate. We're actually going to be addressing those questions over the next couple of weeks. Then Samuel's doing a a single standalone uh, sermon, yet to be decided, well, as far as I know, yet to be decided. Uh, And then we're going to begin a study through the book of Exodus. So that's where we're heading preaching-wise in the future. But one of the things as we've gone through these chapters in John's Gospel, we have looked at some of these central truths of the Christian faith. That Jesus Christ entered into the world to save lost sinners. To bear the consequences, the punishment for their sins upon himself in order that by those who would trust in him would have forgiveness and eternal life. And that he has demonstrated his authority and his power over sin, death and Satan by his resurrection. The author who wrote this gospel, John, even gives us reasons why he wrote this gospel. Saw this back in John chapter 20. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John declares, and this could be said of all of the scriptures, it's not just written to give us more information. It is given and it demands a response. These things are written not to say that you might think, oh, I've learned something new about Jesus or about God, but that you might believe, that you might enter into an active, ongoing trust in Jesus Christ. And that as a result of that, you may have life in his name. So a cause of response that we respond, believe and trust ourselves to Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we receive the very life that we were created for. 
This is the life, this is the abundant life that we were called to, to live in right relationship with God. And by trusting in Jesus that his death on our behalf is satisfactory to deal with the problem of our sin, to bring us back to God, that we enter into that life for which we were created. So we've gone through John chapter 17 to 21. We started with the Jesus' high priestly prayers. He prepares his disciples for the fact that he is going away, that he is going to die. And he sets the record straight. He does pretty much say from chapter 14 onwards, this is must happen. The Son of Man must suffer, be handed over by the chief priests and the scribes, and he must be killed and again be raised on the third day. He wants to assure them when things look like they're going pear-shaped, this is the plan of God. This is all sorted. But despite all of that, when Jesus is arrested, we see the majority of his disciples do the runner. You see Peter and John sort of following as a distance. Although even that's not particularly glamorous in the way in which they follow. We see Peter asked on three occasions about Jesus Christ and he basically says, who? Never heard of him, don't know him. At the trial, we see that and we question, how is this ever going to take place? Jesus says, he must die. It is necessary. He's come to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Yet the person who had the authority to have him crucified kept saying, I don't find any guilt in him and tried to release him. The people who were trying to bring charges against him didn't actually have charges that would stand up in a Roman court of law. But he still, God achieves his purposes as he does at all times. Then there was the embarrassment for the, for the Christian faith. We saw on the day where it said that he would be raised, he was indeed raised, but there doesn't appear to be a single one of his followers who expected him to be, despite the fact that Jesus had declared that this would happen. Even when Mary and Peter and John came back and told the disciples that they've seen the empty tomb, they didn't believe. They thought it was a sick joke. Even Thomas, even though all of his other disciples, fellow followers of Jesus Christ, had seen the risen Christ, he says, unless I put my hands in his sides and my fingers in his hands, I'm not going to believe. There's some pretty embarrassing things that show the nature of humanity. Now, previously in his interactions with Peter, when you know, he's asking the questions, who do you say I am? And some say this, some do that. And he asks Peter specifically, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And in response, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Can you imagine that in like a business sense? Someone is given a particular role and before they even start it, completely deny the essentials of that role. Jesus told Peter, You're going to, I'm going to use you to build up my church. Yet Peter completely denies it, having any association with Jesus at all. Very hard to build the church without a mention of Jesus, isn't there? How does Jesus interact with a seemingly failed candidate? Last week Samuel looked at verses 1 to 14. And I haven't heard the recording because it's not online just yet, but I presume there was a connection that was made back to Luke chapter 5. 
Like in these verses we see Jesus comes to the disciples, they're out in a boat and they've caught nothing. And he says, take a net, chuck it over the other side. That's exactly what we see back in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus first calls the disciples to follow me. It's preceded by him, they're out there fishing, they've been fishing all night and Jesus says, put your net on the other side. And I think there's an extent to which he's reminding back. Remember back when I called you, called you to follow me. Despite the fact that some of you have gone your own way, you sort of ran away when I got arrested. Despite the fact that you were there cowering away in fear on the day that I said that I was going to be raised. I called you. I still call you. My purposes haven't changed. So we're told after breakfast... If it can be called breakfast, there's no bacon, is there? (laughs) Jesus quite fairly asked Peter a question. It's probably a fair question to ask someone who's denied him three times. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Now, Jesus pretty much asked Simon Peter, this question three times. Do you love me? But on this first occasion, he says, do you love me more than these? I wish he was a bit clearer on that. What does he mean? Do you love me more than your fishing stuff around here? Is he asking Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Is he asking Peter, do you love me more than you love these disciples? Which one is it? What do you think? Do you care? Should you care? I ask that for a particular reason. There's a lot of people when they approach the Bible have a curiosity to learn something new. And they can come across a passage like this and they can see all the things which are the main point of the text and they go, yeah, I know that, and they just don't even think about it. They just look for something that they've never seen before. And I think, oh, I've never asked this question before. And they put all of their energy into something that the Bible doesn't give us details about. It's kind of like when you go to the movies and someone says, how did you find the movie? And you say, I don't know. I spent the whole time right from the beginning trying to figure out what the font was in the opening credits. It can be a real danger when we've got that curiosity. We just want to hear something we've never heard before. But we see both in Peter's response and the way Jesus asks the questions at two other times, there's no indication that this was an important factor. So if you got excited when I said, what, what, what did he mean? I'm not going to give you an answer because I don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us. But the point is, the Bible's not a textbook where we just look for, I know this bit, I don't know this bit. This is God's word given to us. We need to be thinking, what is God intending to communicate to me through these words? What was the purpose? Why are these things written? Because I can tell you, if it's important, God will make it clear. If it's really impossible to figure out what something means, God probably doesn't care too much about it. Do not let your curiosity distract you from hearing the voice of God of what he intended to communicate through his word. But Peter in response doesn't just say, yeah, I love you, sort of like, this is my answer. 
Peter's response was, you know that I love you. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, a number of times we see it says, Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, did this. Or Jesus, knowing what was in their heart, did this. So Peter's answer isn't just saying, yes, this is my opinion, I do believe I love you. He's saying, you know. You have searched me, you know me, you know that I love you. And Jesus' response is a command or a commission, feed my lambs. Now, throughout the Gospels, but particularly John's Gospel, there's a lot of imagery, this idea of Jesus being the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep, the one who feeds and nurtures and cares for his people. The imagery is also there in the Old Testament, where the Old Testament priests and prophets are referred to as being the shepherds, the ones who would care for spiritually the people who would teach them God's word, who would, who would feed them in that sense on the words of God that has been given to them. So what he is calling here of Peter is saying, you love me, feed my sheep, care spiritually for my people, feed them, teach them my word. Now there's a sense in which you think, we could kind of finish here. Verses 16 to 17 just seem like vain repetition, just going back and forth. Do you love me? Yep. Feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep. Or it says tend my sheep in verse 16, but literally it's shepherd my sheep. But why would there be a repetition? Is it because we miss stuff? Or is it just because he thought maybe some guy's going to ask all these questions when he says, do you love me more than these? That we get just so distracted by that that if he needs to raise this three times? Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Peter who he said, I'm going to use you to build my church who in the interim has denied Jesus three times, which to many people's ideas would be disqualified. And Jesus threefold is commissioning him saying, you know what, that thing I called you to do, I said when you were going to be someone I used to build my church, I did that knowing exactly what you were going to do, knowing that you would fail. So there's a threefold commissioning for, for Peter in his role to feed and tend for the people of God to show the reversal of that threefold denial that he'd previously done. Jesus is still 100% committed to everything he said before. Not because he was embarrassed that it wasn't going to look good if he didn't. Jesus called into that role, knowing exactly the failure. He wasn't surprised by it, thinking, oh no, I need to backtrack. Maybe this isn't the right guy. But another thing that's worth noting is the connection between this. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And then he he associates that with the commission, feed my sheep. He makes a very strong connection between a love for God expresses itself in a desire to spiritually care for and feed fellow believers. In other words, if you love me, You will love the things I love. Remember, we've seen that John said the reason why he wrote was that people might believe and they might have life in his name. That they might trust Jesus. That they might enter into the life for which we were created in a perfect and right relationship with God. So if we genuinely want to see people enter into a right relationship with God, If we want to see people reach the potential for which they were created, 
then that should also be our desire. To spiritually care for, to feed and build up people into a right relationship with Christ. We've already seen it's God's desire in Romans chapter 8 that he would bring people to the conformity or to be like Jesus. And if we love God, we should love the things he wants. We should want the things he wants. Likewise, in 1 Peter 5 verse 2, the elders are told to shepherd the flock that is amongst you. Now, while you might think, oh, well, that's, that's the elders' job only, to, to care spiritually for people and to, to edify, I don't think it is. It is something that God calls upon those who are the leaders in the church because it is something he, he considers to be important. Therefore, he wants it in those who are leaders. But I think we're all cared to have a nurturing nature towards the spiritual condition of one another. It should be a vital character of all of us, hence why it is in, of utmost importance amongst those who would be appointed as leaders. Now, I've said many times before that of all the churches I've been involved in, Eastgate's probably been the best I've seen in terms of a church that works together as a family, who care for one another, who practically help and support one another. But what I'd like to see us continue to grow in, and not neglecting that aspect, but that we would grow even deeper in terms of our spiritual care for one another, that we would take a deep-seated spiritual interest in the life of one another. We would desire to encourage one another in the promises of God. That we would draw one another's attention to Christ in the midst of difficult times, in the celebrations of the good things and how God has sustained us. Not that the world would know that we are Eastgaters by our love, but the world would know that we, we love Jesus by our love for one another. It's not a foreign concept to connect the, a love of God to a love of others. Remember when Jesus asked about the greatest commandments, he says, love the Lord your God and, second which is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. It's an expression. A true love of God expresses itself in a love for others. But while we're on this topic of love, I'm going to stay on a little bit of a side note. You know how often you hear in a sermon people make big distinctions about different Greek words for love? I'm going to apologise here. I'm probably going to ruin some of your favourite sermons. Usually the way it goes along is something like this. They tell you there's three Greek words in the Bible that get translated as love. That's actually wrong. There are three Greek words for love, but only two of them actually get used in the Bible. Usually it goes along something like this, that eros is an erotic love. Again, that word's not used in the Bible, um, so I haven't actually looked into that word. Then you've got philip, philos, that usually gets described as being a love that you have for a brother or a friend, or agape, people say, is like God's unconditional love. But what you'll see, if you look through the way these words get used in the Bible interchangeably, these distinctions don't seem to be there. As a matter of fact, you'll see some cases where they just don't, cannot exist to have those sort of distinctions. So, for example, to look at the passage we just had read, how it would read if you took those as being true. When they finished having breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love Agape? Do you love me with this unconditional love? More than these. And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you like a, a brother or a friend, Philos. He said, feed my lambs. And then he said a second time, Simon, do you love me with this unconditional love, Agape? And he said, yes, you know that I love you like a brother or a friend. 
He says, tend to my sheep. Then he said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you now love me like a friend or a brother? Peter was grieved that he said for him a third time, do you love me? And he says, You're, you know everything you know that I love you. Like, the logic of that doesn't make sense when you put it like that. That God's asking for some, Jesus asks him for some unconditional love and he says, nah, I'll just settle for something less. Apart from the fact that Jesus, it says here that Peter was concerned that he'd ask him three times, do you love me? And he says this other one. And another thing worth noting is that this is a conversation that didn't even happen in Greek. This is a conversation that took place in Aramaic. Remember back to your English classes in high school and sometimes you kept repeating the same word over and over and over again and you get a note from your teacher saying, get a thesaurus? I don't think there's... There is not a distinction in the ways in which these words are used. It's quite right that we just have love translating them all because they don't seem to have specific distinctions that make one different than the other. To give you just a few examples from John's Gospel, in John 3.35 it says the Father loves the Son, using agape, unconditional. Then in 5.20 it says Father loves the Son, using philos. So you can't say one's the unconditional and the other one's a lesser as though it's just a, a brother or a friend. Jesus loves Lazarus, 11.5, Hecope, and also Philos, 11.36. But I think the most important distinction, because everyone focused on this Agape being a God-only unconditional love and it's a good God-only thing, neglecting the fact the Bible uses that term in a negative sense. In 2 Timothy 4.10, for Demas in love with this present world, love, agape, has not a positive use to say this guy has gone after the love of this world, which Christians, we're not called to do. So the distinctions of using those words and having tying a particular meaning to them to distinguish them goes against the way in which the Bible uses them. So there's my little side note over. But the point is, there can be a danger of emphasising too much on original languages in a sermon because you don't need to, but the majority of people do not know the original languages, therefore you have to believe the person who's up the front, don't you? So there can be dangers in doing that, particularly if you don't do it well. Anyway, sorry, a bit rude to cut off Jesus in the middle of his sentence, but let's get back to it. He goes on, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. Now that seems a bit of an unnatural progression in the conversation. He says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And now he goes on to give something by way of a prediction of the way in which he would die. Now, tradition, as probably most of you know, records this idea that Peter was crucified upside down, uh, that he was considered unworthy to be crucified in the same way as the Lord. The first appearance of that comes in uh, a book called The Acts of Peter, written in the second century, which, while it does have some good factual information in it, also has some novelties, like Peter raised a tuna fish, and that Simon's Magus also flew in in the air as well. However, it was widely testified through many other early Christian writings that Peter was indeed um, martyred under Roman rule, so very highly likely that he was crucified, plus the fact we do have the way Jesus spoke of his death here, saying this was to speak of the way in which he would die, that his hands would be, would be, take, would be, would be stretched out. 
Interesting to note too that words when it says this was to describe the kind of death he was going to die to glorify God is exactly the way in which the authors previously speak of Jesus' death as well. But this isn't exactly modern marketing, is it? He said, I want you to go feed my sheep. I want you to build up my church. Guess what? You're going to die this cruel way like I've just died. Follow me. There's much better ways to promote a role, isn't there, than that? But the fact is that Peter and thousands of other Christians who knew that was exactly the path that things would take by living in faithful obedience to God thought, I don't care. There is far more value in knowing Christ, in knowing the Saviour, than preserving my very life itself. Now what Jesus reveals to Peter is more than just impressive insight into his death. Remember, this is the one who Jesus said, you'll build my church. He's denied him three times. He's now recommissioned him. Jesus recommissioned him saying, feed my sheep. And as an assurance to let him know that he actually won't deny him, that he will be committed to those things, he says, you know what? You're going to be so committed to that thing to which I've assigned you to, you're going to die for it. Now, now that Jesus has given insight into Peter's death, Peter's got some questions to ask. He looks around, he sees the other disciple, John, says, what about him? How's things going to work out for that fella? Now, we don't know if he's just wondering whether or not he's getting the rough end of the stick or whether or not he has a genuine concern that he loves John and he doesn't want to see the same thing happen to him. But there's a fair bit of human nature going on there, isn't it? We're challenged that God is going to do something difficult in our life and we think, what about someone else? Rather than respond, God, what do you want of me? How can I rightly respond to you? We think, what about everybody else? Now, it reminds you a little bit of the whole speck and the plank in the eye situation, doesn't it? Here you are trying to point out the problem in someone else. You have a huge problem in your own life and you haven't seen it. Jesus effectively says to Peter, you just worry about yourself. You just worry about what I have called you to do. Don't worry about what everyone else is doing. The only thing that you can actually make effective changes about is your own life. It's the same for all of us in terms of our Christian living. The standard to which we look to for who we are and how we are to live isn't other Christians. It is Christ and what he has revealed to us in his word. That's what we compare ourselves to. We don't think the Bible calls me to this, but I know this person, he's a pastor, he's not doing it, so I'm not going to do it either. And we think, oh, I'd never do that. But how often does it happen that we're either reading a book or sitting in a sermon and the very first thought we have is, oh, I wish this person who was here at church this morning, they really need to hear this. When you're looking at the word of God, the question shouldn't be who needs to hear this, it should be how do I respond to this? What does this say about me? How do I rightly respond to God in what, I, what he is presenting to me in, through his word? But also in this passage, I find a real encouragement to me in preaching and in ministry. In response to Peter's question about John, we see Jesus' answer. It says, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. 
And this is what happened as a result of him saying that. So the saying spread among, among the brothers that this disciple was not going to die. Yet Jesus didn't say to him that he wasn't going to die, but if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So even Jesus' words got misunderstood. People presumed by him saying that what, what is there if, if he remains until I return? What is that to you? People heard that and thought, Jesus saying this place not going to die. And also, I think there's a good lesson for us all as listeners. If something seems odd, if someone says something, you think, I wouldn't imagine Steve would have said that or Ray, Samuel or anyone, wherever you find yourself. Probably the best thing to do is say, Steve, Ray, Samuel, whoever, in your sermon, I think, came across to me like you were saying this. Is that what you meant? And it's probably good for both parties when that happens. If Jesus can be misunderstood in his words, I can guarantee you I will, and I'm sure I have said things that have been uh, heard the wrong way and probably because I haven't spoken them clearly enough. But the book finishes with a reminder. What is written in this book is only a small glimpse into all the things that Jesus did. If it recorded everything, all the books of the world couldn't contain them. Do you want to know what's even more glorious than that? Now part of us think, oh, I wish I was there. I wish I could have seen it all. Even if you had seen every single thing that Jesus ever did, even that would only be a small glimpse into the fullness of who he is. And the one day that we will see him in all of his glory and we'll enjoy his presence forevermore. And as we ponder the glory of the Lord, we tend to start to feel a little bit small, don't we? Sometimes this thought that we're all being called to be ambassadors of Christ, that we're all called to live according to the high call of the gospel, it's very easy to think, man, how much have I failed to be who I should be with relation to God? And you know what I want to say to you if you feel that way yourself? Join the queue. Jesus doesn't give up on his people. Hebrews 13, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Matter of fact, I encourage you to read through your Bible and look at people who God strongly used for his good purposes and you'll find it really hard to find one who didn't mess up in a major way at some point in their life. Yet God continued to use them. Not because he overlooked them, but because those people saw their errors of their way, repented of their sin, and God continued to use them despite their many failings and faults. The Bible's full of examples, not only Peter. And if you allow your past to define the extent to which you believe you can be useful to God, I can guarantee you no one will consider themselves useful. When we measure how useful we can be in the hands of God, we need to not think firstly about what I say about myself, but what does he say? Now in saying that, I'm not saying it's an anything goes, because what God says about ourselves is, in the scriptures, there are roles and particular things where he gives specific requirements for us, so it doesn't mean that everyone can do everything. I'm not saying anything silly like that. But there are things that all of us are called to as Christians. And as we see in the example of Peter, who was told, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to use you to build my church. Even though he denied Jesus three times, 
That didn't, failure didn't come as a surprise. Jesus didn't need to renegotiate the contract or the nature of the deal or give him a different role because he was no longer any good at it. If we are called to be ambassadors of Christ, if he's called all believers to, to be disciples who make disciples, then he hasn't changed his mind despite how many failings. Remember the Great Commission, when he gives that Great Commission? We all know the content of it. To go make disciples of all nations, baptise them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I have commanded you. That's sandwiched in between two phrases. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and I am with you always. And the same could be wedged around any of the things that he calls all Christians to. The one who calls you to it is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth who has promised to be with us even till the end of the age. The person who has little by the world's standards but trusts God has a lot. Or to expand that a little bit further, the person who has little in the eyes of the world but wholeheartedly and unreservedly trusts Jesus has everything. He has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. Now, we're not all called to have the exact same role as Peter. We're not all called to do the exact same things. But there are basic things as followers of Jesus Christ that we are all called to. And we can be equally assured, as Peter was also, that our failings do not hinder God's ability to achieve those things through us. And we should not limit God's work through us based upon our perception of ourselves. We need to be reminded, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If he has called us to specific things corporately as Christians, he is able to do those things through us. We need to not look at our failings. We need to look at our almighty God who has called us to those things. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, if it was based upon my perception of my suitability to, to be in the role in which I am in, I would run to the hills. Lord, we're all very well aware of our failings. As we, re- as we read your word, we're constantly reminded of, of ways in which we don't entirely uh, match up to all that you've called us to be. But at the same time, there is a, a deep dissatisfaction about that because there's still something yearning within us that wants something more. Lord, you haven't finished your work that you have begun within us and you are going to continue to refine us. Throughout the scriptures we see you continue to use weak, faulty people. But people who acknowledge they are weak, faulty people who when they fail they bring their, their sins and their confessions before you. And as they wholeheartedly trust you and lean upon you, they see you work through them. And they don't say, look at what I've done. They give thanks for the grace that you would be so pleased to work through weak vessels such as ourselves. But we pray that as we minister to one another, that there would be great strength seen in our weakness. 
that, Lord, that you'd be pleased to use us as weak vessels to, to encourage, to build up one another. And, Lord, that we would give praise and thanks to you when we see you at work, even in places and through people that we might think are the most unlikely of places. Because you are the one of the, uh, you are all powerful, and you can do whatever you will. And we give you thanks for that in Jesus' name, Amen.